there was a, a Reddit thread. If you know what Reddit is, it's kind of like this online forum that you can have these forums and talk about any sort of thing that you want. And there was this Reddit forum that was uh, new parents were talking about some of the advice that they were given from non-parents. Now, if you're a parent, maybe you can think back to those days when non-parents gave you advice. So here, I wrote a few of these down because I thought they were good. A new mom said that her friend wanted to go on a lunch date with her in the afternoon. And she said, the new mom said, well, I can't. My baby has to take a nap. And her friend said, baby doesn't need to sleep. Just skip the nap. Okay. Then there was another mom who was eight months pregnant. She's, she's getting ready to, to deliver. And her friend says, man, I am so excited for you to go on maternity leave. We can go get lunch and drinks all the time. Because that's clearly what you do on maternity leave and have all the time for. And this one was, made me laugh as well. Uh, some new parents, and they've got the little baby, and they have a little binky, you know, the little pacifier in the baby's mouth. And this parents, their brother-in-law, who was not a parent, said, oh, I would never, I would never give my child a binky. Okay, let's just say a couple things here. Number one, it's not that um, non-parents can't give good advice. I mean, yes, we can all give good advice. But sometimes... Um, Sometimes the advice you give is limited if you can't identify and understand what a parent is going through, right? Like, like, like I'm just saying, naps, you don't skip those. And I'm talking about for me and for children. Like, I don't skip those naps. Naps are that important. Like, those are just some of those things that, like, it may make sense as a non-parent, but when you're a parent, you're like, no, man, this really screws things up if I do this or that. There's something to be said about somebody who can identify with us and kind of understand what we are going through. In fact, I'm in a number of text threads with a number of pastors where we often talk about leadership and preaching, and we have the chance to pray for one another in these text threads. And there was one of these threads this past week, and the conversation started moving towards the direction of having a conversation about the transgender issue in our culture, and within the church. And there are one of these pastors who, I, I, he's a godly man. I, I love this guy. He's a good pastor. But he's got some pretty strong opinions. And, and for him, oftentimes, when you talk to him, things are, are just black and white. And really, he comes across as very unemotional. You ever, you ever met someone like that? Where they are so convinced of their own opinion they have a hard time empathizing with anybody else. They might come across as harsh or not being very caring. So this pastor is talking, and another one of my pastor friends pipes up. And he asks this question. He said, do you have any friends? Or have you ever known someone and loved someone and cared about someone who struggled with gender identity? And this is why he said this. He said, because when you know someone, when you have a relationship with someone who struggles like that, listen, the truth doesn't change. The truth doesn't change. But it changes how you speak about the issue. When you can understand and identify and empathize with somebody, there, there tends to be more sensitivity, more compassion, more grace, and how you communicate the truth that you're trying to communicate. Isn't this what Jesus did? Jesus, remember, he was full of, of grace 
and truth. He was able to be at that spot that he could speak out of love and compassion, yet still speak the truth. Let's just be honest. When we are struggling through life, whatever it happens to be, some difficulty, some temptation, some sin, we start seeking support and counsel from somebody ideally who can identify with us, who can try and understand what we are going through, who can have empathy towards our situation. Because when we find somebody who doesn't identify with us, that person, they may be able to speak truth into your life. But at best, that truth comes across as maybe being a little bit out of touch. And at worst, that person comes across as just being a plain jerk. Hard to find comfort when there's that lacking of empathy and and understanding. You know, the past few months, we've been in a sermon series that we're calling The Story where we're trying to see that when we open the scriptures, we open this book right here, every, every story, every character, every command, uh, everything in this book is, one, is actually part of a bigger story, one big story. And it's all about Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. And so we started this uh, four months ago, and we looked at 19 passages out of the Old Testament trying to help us understand that even in the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus on the cross. And last week, we had the chance to finally start the New Testament. And we, we looked, started last week in Matthew chapter 1, we saw the genealogy of Jesus and how the genealogy of Jesus teaches us two things. Number one, it teaches us that Jesus actually is that Savior. He is that hero. He is the Messiah that we've been waiting for since the very beginning of time. And secondly... We saw through the genealogy of Jesus and the inclusion of some pretty shady characters in his genealogy that no level of brokenness can stop God from from working. There's no brokenness and suffering that would stop the the, the promises of God from, from coming true. But today... We're moving forward a little bit in the book of Matthew. We're going to look at the the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. Now, usually when pastors are preaching through Scripture, they look at the baptism and the temptation, and these are two different stories, two different messages. But I think there's a a powerful connection between these two, which is why we've grouped them together today. And so as we look at these two stories of the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, we're going to find first an encouraging truth, something that should encourage us. And that is that Jesus identifies with us. He understands what we go through. And then secondly, beyond that, there's going to be a deeper truth. A deeper truth that's going to give us the strength for how we live free from the power of sin. How we overcome temptation. So here we go. Chapter 3 actually starts talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the forerunner uh, for Jesus. It's the forerunner of the Messiah. He also happens to be Jesus' cousin. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he's preaching a message about repentance of sin and baptism for that repentance. And so he's preaching, and all sorts of people, they're responding in droves. People are coming out of the woodwork to be baptized by John the Baptist. And the story picks up in Matthew 3, verse 13. It says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to John to be baptized by him. But John prevented him and said, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me. See, again, Jesus and John, they're cousins. So John recognizes Jesus, and he's like, whoa, whoa, bro, whoa. I 
I'm not the one that, you shouldn't come to me to be, I should come to you to be baptized. You don't have a need to be baptized by me. See, John knew who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that Jesus was sinless, that he had done nothing wrong. He says, Jesus, you don't need my baptism for repentance. You have nothing to repent of. But Jesus continues in verse 15. And Jesus responds and says, let it be, it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented and baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And this right here is our encouraging truth this morning. That, that we see Jesus through the baptism. What he's doing is he's actually trying to identify with us. He's identifying with humanity. Now, if we understand Jesus, Jesus is Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus is God in the flesh. That is who he is. He is a son of God, God in the flesh. He has all of, of God's deity within him, which makes him different than anyone else who has ever lived. Yet, when he came to the earth, when he was born, he chose not to live like God, but rather chose to take on human form just like us. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, it says, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He said, I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm not going to stake my claim on this. Rather, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant in the likeness of humanity. You see, Jesus came to the earth and lived like you and I. He lived like a human being. He, go, he went through the things that you and I go through. He chose to live like we do. He chose to do what we do. And this included taking the waters of baptism to show that he is one of us, to show that he is on the side of sinners. I mean, think about this. Jesus loves you so much. He loves you so much that even though he has never been deficient and in need of mercy, he loves you so much that he still went to be baptized as one who was deficient and in need of mercy. So he can understand us and, and, and identify with us so that when we come to him, when we are deficient and in need of mercy, he has the ability to understand and to fill us up. Baptism was so unnatural to him because he wasn't a sinner, yet he did it in solidarity to identify with us as sinners. That's pretty remarkable. But you see, Jesus doesn't just identify in baptism but we also see he identifies with us and understands what temptation is all about. Because as soon as Jesus is baptized, this happens. And then chapter 4 says, The Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I don't know about you, but I go 40 minutes without eating, and I'm getting hangry. Anybody else there? And so Jesus has gone 40 days, 40 nights with no food. And it says in verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3, The tempter came. And said, if you are the son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. You see, these three different temptations, we're going to look and see what they're all about. This first temptation, Satan is tempting Jesus to prioritize the gifts of God over God himself. Of course, Jesus, he's 40 days, he's probably hungry. But again, remember, it was the spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness. To, to learn how to trust and depend on God. 
He was supposed to trust God to provide his needs when God was ready. Again, there's nothing wrong with bread. Bread is good. There's nothing wrong with bread. But this temptation was for Jesus to depend on bread and instead of depending on God to meet his needs. You ever experienced that temptation for yourself? You want the blessings of God. You want God's peace. You want his joy. You want all these things. Let's just be honest. How many of us, we live our lives wanting stuff from God? We want all that he can offer us. But we don't want to wait for God to give it to us. In fact, we want what God offers us, but we don't want to actually follow him. We don't actually want to trust him and obey what he says. We just want what he can do for us. This is the temptation. And so Jesus responds, and as he responds to these temptations, he quotes scripture. So he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he says, Man should not live by bread and alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, what Jesus is saying is there something more important to me than just bread? There's something more important to me than, than the stuff that, Jesus, that God can offer me. What's more important to me is God himself. My soul will not be completed by bread. My soul will only be completed by God. After that temptation, there comes another one. Verse 5. It says, Then the devil took Jesus to a holy city, and he set him on a pinnacle, and he said, listen, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. He's saying, hey, hey, let's go on top of this cliff. If you jump off this cliff, if God really loves you, if you really are the son of God, of course God's going to protect you and nothing bad's going to happen to you, right? See, this second temptation is the temptation to interpret God through our circumstances rather than through the word of God. We can understand that temptation, right? We go through life, we struggle, things get difficult, and we're like, God, don't you love me? God, aren't you supposed to be for me? Why, if you love me, then why am I suffering like this? Why am I going through this, this difficult thing? And then if life is good, well, things are good right now, of course God loves me, I'm blessed. And so we begin to interpret our, 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 we interpret God based on our circumstances, based on what's happening in our life. Yeah, here's the story. Jesus, he is the son of God. And here he is suffering in the middle of, a, of the wilderness. He's led by the spirit and he's not shielded from pain. He's fasted for 40 days. He is now tempted by Satan and he is right where he is supposed to be. And so Jesus responds to Satan. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 and says, You are not to put the Lord your God to the test. How many of you have ever found yourself in that wilderness? Struggling. Financial hardship. Betrayal of a close friend. Disrespectful kids. Unappreciative boss. The question is, what will you choose to believe? Will you interpret God through your circumstance and say, God must not be for me because I'm suffering? Or will you interpret your circumstance through the word of God and know that God still is working things in your life? Next one. Done with the second temptation. 
Number three comes in verse eight. It says, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said, all of these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. This third temptation is a temptation to pursue a good thing in the wrong way. The kingdoms of the world, in fact, Scripture says that Jesus will inherit the kingdoms of God. It says there's coming a day when every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every knee will bow down and worship him. Every nation, every kingdom. So, so this has already been promised. But it's all going to come after Jesus goes to the cross. After Jesus suffers for our sin and goes to, the, goes to the cross and dies in our place and rises from the grave. And Satan is here and he's saying, hey, you know what? Jesus, you don't need to suffer like that. Here, take the shortcut. Take the shortcut. Rather than suffering the cross, why don't you bow down before me? And I'll just give you all the kingdoms of the world. You can have all the power and the authority. Just worship me, and then you won't have to suffer. This is a temptation to compromise. How many of you have been there feeling the temptation to compromise? We really, we really want to be here. We really want to get to this spot. We want to get there. We feel like, we, we actually feel like, hey, this is what God wants for me. But sometimes it feels God takes a little too long, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels like God is too slow. He's not moving fast enough. So we try and take shortcuts. We try and take matters into our own hands. And pretty soon we start sacrificing all sorts of things. We sacrifice our integrity. We sacrifice our family. We sacrifice all sorts of things. Where instead of waiting for God, we pursue the things that God offers in the completely wrong way. Again, this is where Jesus is. Here's the temptation, and Jesus responds in verse 10 and says, Be gone, Satan. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6. He says, You are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. You know, the cool thing about these temptations, and I, I, I just, the encouraging thing about this it's not only that Jesus identifies us as sinners, but he identifies and understands what temptation is about. I mean, when we feel the temptation to, to whatever it is, like Jesus understands that temptation. He identifies with us. He understands what our life is like. He understands the pressure. He identifies with our experiences. Isn't that pretty awesome? Isn't that pretty cool to think, here's God himself who became one of us to identify and understand what we are going through. And that's a really encouraging message. No matter what we're facing today, no matter what it is you're facing today, Jesus understands. He empathizes for you. He knows what you're going through. He knows the emotion behind it, the difficulty, the fear, the anxiety. But you know, if we ended the message right there, if we stopped and said, hey, that's the message, Jesus identifies with us, what is our application? What do, we, what do we do in response to that message? Well, the obvious application is, number one, is we are to be baptized like Jesus. And number two, the application would be, if we're going to resist temptation and overcome sin, 
We need to memorize scripture just like Jesus did. I mean, that would be the application. He identifies with us, and here's what he did. So we need to go and do that too. And oftentimes what we do is we look at scripture and we find all these things we need to do. We need to do this. We need to do that. We need to be more religious. We need to do all these things. But here's here's one of the things I'm convinced about scripture. I'm convinced about it. Jesus didn't come to make us more religious. Jesus didn't come to make us have more to do and more to learn and and more religion to put on. See, there is a deeper truth in this story, deeper than just the fact that Jesus identifies us with us. There's something deeper that shows us that he actually rescues us from temptation and from sin. So let's go back a little bit. Let's look back at Matthew chapter 3. Let's relook at the baptism to find this deeper truth. Let me ask you this. What was the type of baptism that John the Baptist was offering? It says it in, in, in Matthew, but, but I think Luke chapter 3 says it a little more clearly. Luke 3 says this was a baptism of repentance. This is a baptism of repentance. Now let me ask, did Jesus have anything to repent of? No. He was sinless. He had nothing to repent of. Who needed to repent? All of us. The rest of us, all of us, humanity. Jesus didn't have anything to repent of. We did. And here's here's the deeper truth. Is Jesus came not just to identify with us, but he came as our substitute. See, I don't think Jesus is being baptized for himself. I think Jesus is being baptized for us. He's experiencing this baptism of repentance in our place. You see, this idea of of substitution is so important to understand the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, in in the Gospel of John, it says that when, when, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, you know what he told the people? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know what a lamb is? In the Old Testament, you would sacrifice a lamb as a substitute for the penalty for sin. So we take all of our sins, you take, you take, you take uh, the, the, the dirty words you shared this week, you take the, the anger you're still holding on to, you take the lust in your heart, you take those things in your heart, and you say, hey, I'm going to put that on this lamb, and I'm going to sacrifice this lamb, and it's going to suffer in my place for my sin. Listen, Jesus is the lamb of God. That is exactly what he came to do, to be a, a substitute for us. To pay our penalty for sin. So that we could be free from sin and Satan and death and hell. See, imagine this. All of us in this room. We wear the name tag that says sinner. We all have a name tag that says sinner. I should have made you all wear one because this is who we are. I want to make sure we understand this. And in the baptism, Jesus going as a substitute... Here's what Jesus does. He, he, has, he has a name tag that says righteous. R says sinner, because we're sinners, and he wasn't a sinner, so he was righteous. And what Jesus does is he walks around the crowd. He walks around the church. He walks around us, and he takes our sinner name tag and puts it on himself. He takes this one, and he gives us the one that says righteous. There we go. There we go. This is what he does. 
He is taking this from uh, us. He's giving us this one. And then you know what he does with this? You know what he does with this tab right here? That says sinner? He goes to the cross where he who knew no sin became sin for us. This is a ministry of substitution. He became our substitute. Jesus in our place. This is a story of scripture. This is a story of the gospel. That we are sinners. We are broken. We, 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 we. And he comes and says, hey, hey, I'm going to substitute myself. I'll take the sinner. I'll give you the righteousness. And I'll go and suffer in your place. See, I think here in the baptism of Jesus, we see this beginning of Jesus being our substitute. Saying, listen, not only do I identify with you in your humanity and your struggle, but I want you to know I'm your substitute. I'm going to be baptized for you. That I'm going to die for you. This is a ministry of substitution. In fact, right after Jesus is baptized, this is what it says in verse 16. That immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened. And we saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What kind of voice do you think that was? I always think, is that like Sean Connery? This is my beloved Son. I don't know. It's just my mind goes weird places. Listen. When that voice speaks, who's it speaking to? Is that voice speaking to Jesus to say, hey, Jesus, God's so proud of you. Good job. Probably. But I think that voice is speaking for our benefit. I think that voice is is speaking, saying, listen, I see Jesus stepping into this, this substitution. And God's like, yes, yes. See, God's been looking forward to this moment. Since Genesis chapter 3, the very first promise of a Savior. He, he's been waiting for this moment when sin entered the world and brought chaos and disrupted our relationship with him. And so as Jesus goes in and says, listen, I'm going to be a substitute. I'm going to be baptized for you sinful people. God is like, yes, I'm well pleased. This plan of redemption is happening. This Messiah, this substitute, he is coming to repair the relationship between God and man. Yeah, I think that voice is saying to us, listen, this is my beloved son. This is the Messiah who's come as a substitute for you. Now it's like, okay, that's good. But how does this idea of substitution, how does it correlate to the temptation of Jesus? Really good question. But look at this. At the end of the baptism, what did God say? This is my beloved son. This is who Jesus is. This is my beloved son. But look at chapter 4, verse 3 and verse 6. What does Satan say before the temptation? If you are the son of God. See the correlation? Here's God, this is my beloved son, and here's Satan. Well, if you are the son of God. See, I think the core temptation has nothing to do with bread. Has nothing to do with surviving, jumping off a cliff. It has nothing to do with with Satan giving him the kingdoms of the earth. I think the core temptation 
Satan is trying to get him to doubt his identity as a son of God. Trying to get him to, to question God's presence, God's plan, God's goodness, God's love towards him. I think that's what the core temptation really is. And Jesus responds. Notice every time he responds, he responds with the word of God. And every one of these responses, every one of them deals with the security that he has in God's eyes. He says, listen, I don't need bread. I need God. He says, I don't, I don't need to test God. God has already said, this is my beloved son. God has already said it. He's already proved it. He's saying, I don't need to have, uh, I don't need to worship power and authority. You don't need to give me those kingdoms because I worship God alone. See, when we think about our temptation, again, there's all sorts of temptations that we deal with. Temptations for lust and greed and anger and pride. Temptation to worship stuff instead of God. You know what the root temptation of all of that all of that is? The root temptation is for us to doubt God. For us to doubt that God is good. For us to doubt that God loves us. For us to doubt that God has a plan. That God is working things out for our good and for his glory. You see, Jesus wasn't just quoting scripture to quote scripture like it's some thing in itself. Now, remember, remember, let me, let's just step back a little bit. What is this sermon series all about? We're in the sermon series called The Story, right? And we're saying every, every, every book, every character, every command, every page of the Bible, what does it point to? It points to us becoming strong enough to overcome Satan, right? I mean, that's the point of the book, right? No, no, no. Every, every, it points us so we can uh, learn how to withstand the, the wiles of the devil, no, the Bible is there so we can learn how to be religious people, right? That's, that's what the story's all about, right? No. The story is about Jesus as our substitute. The one who went to the cross in our place. See, the word of God reminds us of exactly that, that he is our substitute who chose to go in our place to die on the cross in our place, to raise from the grave, to conquer sin and Satan and death and hell. And that is how we come into a relationship with God. That is how we become sons and daughters of God. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done in our place. And so what happens is when Satan comes and tempts us to say, hey, you need to doubt that God is good. You need to doubt that God is caring for you. You need to doubt that God has a plan for you. You need to doubt that God is concerned about fulfilling your, your joy. No. Jesus is saying we turn back to Scripture. Remind us of Scripture because what is Scripture teaching us? Not how to be religious. Now how to be stronger to overcome temptation. Now it's teaching us who Jesus is and what he has done for us and who we are because of that. Because I'll tell you what, that can't be taken away from you. That cannot be taken away. That, that is, Jesus said, it is finished. I offered my sacrifice for you. 
The secret to overcoming temptation, the secret to overcoming sin, is not us trying harder. It's us believing better. Believing in what Jesus has done for us. Believing that his work is complete. Believing that because of what he's done, no matter what we experience right now, no matter how difficult life is, we are sons and daughters of God. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done in our place. And there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In fact, I try and make sure we do this pretty clear because I want us to understand. Here's, here's the big idea. Here's the summary of what this message is all about. That Jesus identifies with us as sinners. And that is so good and encouraging. But he also came as our substitute to free us from the power of sin in this world. Then we come to the point, great, now what do we do? I got two points of application, then we'll we'll be done. Listen, if Jesus came to identify with us as sinners, I think that means for us, whatever it is you're facing, whatever it is you are going through, man, we need to seek God for counsel and comfort. In fact, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And I hear that, and I'm like, that's great, Jesus. How can you say that? Again, it's this idea of what we've talked about. The book of Hebrews says, We have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may find mercy and grace and help in our time of need. Listen, what are you struggling through right now? What is that burden on your soul? That weight, that difficulty, that anxiety, that fear? I want you to understand that Jesus identifies and understands. He understands pain, rejection, disappointment. He's experienced it himself. Whatever it is you're facing, and the bigger question is, who are you seeking comfort from? We're so tangible to look around to people around us. In fact, A little bit about me. Sometimes I have a hard time letting things go. I hold on to stuff. And I've been dealing with this situation where I I feel like I was wronged. And I'll tell you what, in my mind, I'm completely right and justified to feel the way I do. I know. I'm not wrong here. I see the situation right. And so I'm feeling this, this, this burden. I'm frustrated by it. You know what I do? Maybe you guys are more spiritual than me. And I'm like, yeah, God, I need your help. But I start talking to people. Hey, listen, here's what's going on. Man, do you agree with me? Like, like help me feel right about this. And they're like, no, I, I don't see it. I, I don't know what's going on. You've, you've got some weird thing going on. And so you know what I do? I sit there and I stew on it. And I, and I marinate in it. And it's just, it's ruminating in my heart. Oh, man. And it just gets ugly. 
In fact, I'm sitting in here and I'm like, man, I, I don't want to do this, God. And, and I prayed, and I'm like, God, would you take this from me? God, would you just take this from me? And you know what happened? Still there. Still, still consumed with it. I'm like, God, I don't know what to do. So here this past week, week and a half ago, I, I grabbed my journal. And I started journaling through this situation. Now, I don't know. Maybe you guys journal differently. But for me, to journal is a way that I pray. It's one of the ways that I feel like I can pour out my heart to God. Sometimes I find myself being a little ADD, where when I start praying, I'm like, oh, yeah, here and here and here. But when I journal, man, I'm focused. And I'm going to work through an issue. And I'm journaling through this. I'm getting it all out. And I acknowledged, you know, I feel right here. I feel I see this right. Yet I feel rejected. I feel slighted. As I'm writing this, I'm like, you know, I'm looking for someone who understands me. You know, God is right there with me listening to every one of those things and says, I understand every bit of that. I know what is right. I know what it's like to know what you're doing is right, to feel rejected and set aside. He says, I've been there. And I'm journaling, and all of a sudden, I feel the presence of God. And it's like he, he spoke to me. And he said, listen, God won't take away what you don't want to give up. So here I am, struggling with this, and, I, and I'm burdened with it. And I'm like, God, would you take this from me? And the, that was the wrong prayer. The prayer should have been, God, I'm just going to give this to you. God, I need to give this to you because then you can take it. And I'll tell you what, I got to pray that prayer on a regular basis. It's sometimes several times a day, God, it's coming up. I need to give it to you again because otherwise it's going to come right back and stew. Whatever it is you're going through, health, money issues, relationship problems, anxiety, depression, you need to know that God understands you. Now, when we come to him, he will give us rest. We will find mercy and grace in our time of need. Second application is when we are fighting temptation. We fight our temptation not by focusing on that temptation, but rather focusing on what Jesus has done for us. See, Jesus is God's own son who came to the earth to, to be a substitute for you, to pay the penalty for your sin, which secures your identity with God because of what Jesus has done for you. That assures us of God's steadfast love over each and every one of us. And you know what shatters the power of Satan in our life? You know what shatters the power of Satan and the control he has over us? It's not your strength. It's not your religious devotion. It's not how good of a person you are. It's not all your good works. No, what shatters the power of Satan in our life is the gospel message. That he can, he can do whatever he can to make us doubt God, but we know what God has done for us. He's proved his love for us on the cross. And the gospel message says there's nothing that can happen that can separate us from that. 
And so when Satan comes and tempts us to doubt God is good, to doubt that God is going to provide for us, we say, no, he's proven he's for me. I have it in the cross. Because I'll tell you what, Satan's biggest thing is to try to take our eyes off of our identity in Christ, off of where we stand with him. And if he can do that, if he can take our eyes off of what Jesus has done for us, that is when our foundation is shaken to the core. And that is when we will become vulnerable to all sorts of temptation and all sorts of problems in our life. This is why we're in this series. This is why we're trying to understand that the Bible, the story, the book right here, it's not a bunch of commands to make us religious. It's a book about Jesus and what he has done for us. I was cleaning my notes app on my phone. I, I'm not sure if you guys do this, but I have all sorts of things in my my notes app. And I found a, a note that I had from a while ago, and I think I've shared this with you. There were these four prayers that I uh, got from a pastor friend of mine, and I prayed these for a year and a half every day. I found them on my phone again, and I haven't seen these in probably two or three years. And, and I thought, this idea of fighting temptation, fighting sin, not by focusing on the sin, the temptation, but focusing on God. And these prayers are probably the simplest way for me to remember to focus on God and what he's done and not what I'm, not, not the junk in my life. These four prayers, number one, in Christ, there's nothing I can do to make God love me any more or any less. Number two, God is all I need for everlasting joy. Number three, as God has been to me, so I will be to others. Number four, I will measure God's love by the cross and his power by the resurrection. Can you imagine if those were the thing, those were the thoughts running through our mind each and every day? When that temptation comes to doubt that God is for you. Nope. There's nothing I can do to make God love any me, love me any less. That temptation comes to, to, to find joy and peace from things apart from God. No, God is all I need for everlasting joy. Oh, when that temptation comes to slight somebody who slighted me. No, as God has been to me, so I will be to others. When I look at my circumstances, I'm like, man, I'm suffering. Man, God must not love me. No, we're reminded that I'll measure God's love by the cross and his power by the resurrection. Can you see how victory could be found? By focusing on what Jesus has done for us. Yeah, this is why I'm thankful for the story of the baptism and the temptation. Because Jesus identifies with us. And not only that, he became our substitute. But we don't got to struggle through the temptation alone. We don't got to struggle through it alone. But as we focus on what Christ has done for us, that is where freedom is found. Let's pray.